I mean, my job has become to put food in my face. I don't really know how it can work my way around that. But again, as I comb through the through the comments, there was productive feedback there as well. People who wanted to see the prices on the food, people who had ambitions of doing something similar and didn't really know where to start. At a very basic level, a journalist's job is to inform your audience. If you can be informative and entertaining and fun, people are going to want to hear what you have to say. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. I first became aware of Tess Coleman, the features editor at Delish.com, about six months ago when I discovered her videos on YouTube. If you don't know Tess, she's the young woman who's been eating her way across some of the biggest theme parks in America. Journalism is often a very serious subject, but sometimes journalism can actually be fun and entertaining, and that's what Tess and her team have accomplished with their videos. They're well-produced, informative, and fun. Welcome to the podcast, Tess. Thank you. So before we get into the to your videos, tell me about your journalist journey. How did you get into journalism? And yes, this is journalism. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited you would even classify it as such. I get that a lot, actually. But my journalist journey is that I went to a teeny tiny liberal arts school that offered nothing close to journalism, thought that was going to be a hindrance, that I was an English major and nothing more than that, just was racked with angst over the fact that I never went to journalism school and, again, thought that was going to be something that um, really would prohibit me from entering any sort of media. And at the same time, I had been obsessed with Cosmopolitan magazine for many years because I wasn't allowed to read it when I lived at home. So the two things combined kind of led me to like avidly continue to apply for internships at Cosmo Print. I did that four times over and was rejected each time. Again, was like very tunnel visioned in on Cosmo. I thought that was my way in that like maybe, you know, the free and fun women there wouldn't care about my my tiny liberal arts background, whatever. And continued to apply. I wrote all these handwritten letters to these editors who I'm sure never read them, which in hindsight makes me laugh. Um, and eventually the new editor of Cosmopolitan.com, which at the time was a separate entity, reached out as she was looking for an assistant. And that was my entrance to Hearst. I've not left ever since. But yeah, I've been writing here for about, it'll be seven years soon. Wow. And I think you should probably get over a little bit the idea that a small liberal arts college and a non-journalism degree is not going to get you somewhere in media. Yes. Because uh, clearly you've shown that it can. And I guess this is how you ended up Delish. Delish is a Hearst entity, and you kind of ended up over there. Was your interest in food journalism specifically, or did you just kind of land in it? So the first four years of my life, I'd been told over and over that I needed to classify myself into some sort of beat. I took a stab at news, at hard reporting. I fell under the umbrella of lifestyle for a while, which at Cosmo was sex and relationships and health and beauty and all of it. Really, my byline has been everywhere, but I've always loved food. I've always loved it. And Delish had actually tried to poach me a few times over from under Cosmo. And... Finally, a time had come where there was only so much I could do at that brand. And as much as it broke my heart to do it, I saw an opportunity at Delish. I kind of sneakily <laughs> threw my name in the ring. And I I ended up here. It was a pretty seamless transition, actually. But there certainly was a learning curve from writing about everything to writing about food specifically. 
So what is particularly the challenge about writing about food? It's subjective. <laughs> you can you can say whatever you want to say about food and people can disagree with you, which of course that's the beauty of everything ever is that we all have our own opinions. But I can write about how I think a Dole Whip tastes and that will upset people very much. And it also, there are certain facets to food that some people are very interested in and others that people don't care about at all. And our demographic is entirely split, which I find to be fascinating. You know, now my primary concern is for a YouTube audience who's my age and much younger. Whereas on a more immediate basis, I'm writing for women in their 30s and 40s and 50s and that dichotomy, they're not really interested in the same kind, same kind of thing. So hence my... Um, my little foray into theme parks in the daytime and in my spare time, I'm sitting at a desk wondering what's interesting essentially to moms in the world of food. So how did Iconic Eats come about? I mean, it is kind of a, in one way, kind of an odd idea, but it's also kind of a brilliant idea <laughs> because people don't always think about food when they go to theme parks, but you know, for some people it's part of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. So to be perfectly transparent, I had pitched this series as an entirely different iteration. Again, stemming of like my love of food and just wanting to eat all the time and be an authority, someone who you could trust to take recommendations from on food. I had pitched it as the best beignets in New Orleans, the best deep dish pizza in Chicago, times a million. There's endless possibilities for what you could do there. And we did a cheeseburger video in New York City. And it happenstance is that like the mandate from Hearst is that YouTube is a priority now and let's throw things at the wall and see what works. And it did work, but it was a very slow burn. So we kind of walked away from the idea for a while. I was sent on a press trip to Disney, not something I was super excited about <laughs> at the time. And myself and Chelsea, who is our shooter and director, were just kind of like, we had a spare afternoon. We were like, what if we try it at a theme park? And with the cooperation of the production team, who happened to be very inflexible at Disney in particular, God bless their hearts, we, we ate our way through Disneyland, put it on YouTube, and it blew up so fast. And we realized maybe we had done something that worked. What surprised you about that? Just the, the speed of it, the amount of people who were watching it? Both. It spiked so quickly. People were watching it all the way through which was practically unheard of, not only on our channels, but Hearst-wide, industry-wide. It really was shocking. It was working on Facebook as well, even though it wasn't intended for that medium. I don't know. It was a bit sassier than we intended it to be. Um, so I was a little concerned that that would turn people off, but instead they kind of responded to it. And again, there was a million iterations for it. We could do it. I mean, we are doing it. 10, 20 times over, um, and it's still working. So all of it was kind of surprising. No one really expected that it would live on its own like this. So let me let me read a few statistics here. Iconic Eats is Delicious all-time most successful long-form video series. It's 60 million minutes watched on YouTube with a 75% retention rate, which is pretty impressive. I mean, you talked a little bit about the sassiness. What is it that seems to be so appealing to people. <laughs> if you knew the secret. <laughs> it, uh, I mean, it depends who you ask. Some people don't find it to be appealing at all, but they will continue to watch it all the way through. And I suspect those people are nostalgic all the time. There's something about the draw of a theme park that 
will tempt them to watch it all the way through, regardless of if they think my voice sounds like nails on a chalkboard. You know, this is something I'm thinking about a lot and we're adjusting as we go. But I mean, I also think there's an element of gluttony to it all that people are enjoying. I mean, something I get a lot is that you see all these food challenge shows where men are eating their way through things and that that, I guess, is appealing in some way, shape or form. It's not for me. But then people don't see a lot of women in the space. Like, that's my broad answer. But I've gotten that more than I thought I would. Do you like the food that you're eating, generally? (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Yes. In moderation. I wish I could take one bite of everything and walk away from it. And that's a question I get a lot is, how much of the food are you actually eating? I'm eating a lot of it. Partially because that's a shtick now and because people are enjoying watching me just become progressively iller as the video goes on. Yes, I generally like the food. I also like to think that you can look into my eyes and see that I don't like some of it. Um, I do have PR and production crews standing very close to me as I'm talking about these foods. So I try and choose my words carefully. So I would imagine is, is can be a challenge sometimes when you've already eaten a lot of stuff and it's hot and you probably, you know, maybe this isn't the most, your most favorite food that you're, you're taking part on. Being able to sort of think on your feet is a skill I imagine that you've either had before or you've acquired. It certainly was an acquired skill. And that was something I was excited about when I came to Delish was that when I was at Cosmo, my trajectory seemed very set in stone, that I would be writing, I would become a better reporter, I'd become a better editor. Eventually, I would manage a team of baby editors and baby news writers and whatever until I landed wherever, you know, the Hearst gods took me. And here I become a jack of all trades because I'm producing these videos. I am making sure they're running smoothly. I, I'm good on camera. Who knew? It wasn't something I'd ever done before. But yeah, I have to say I'm proud of myself when I make it all the way through. And again, there is part of it that, you know, is very cyclical that you know that I'm going to start strong and I'm going to end not so strong. But yeah, there's an element of traumatization of it all. You reach a sort of purgatory where you're suddenly, when will this food end? And because of your personality, it's, and this is just my interpretation of it, you seem to engender a degree of, you know, the audience is there for you, I guess. What is the reaction that you're, you're getting? I mean, YouTube commenters can be pretty rough. What has been the sort of feedback you've been getting? So after the Disneyland video... I came back to the office and said I was never going to do it again. That was before I hit the internet and I knew (laughs) what it would become. Once it hit the internet and people were so terribly mean to me, I also said I was never going to do it again. But as I obsessively scrolled through the comments, I did find these like these gems in there. So, you know, again, people hate the things about me that I cannot change. They do not like my voice. They do not like my nose. They do not like what I wear when I go to these shoots. There's plenty of anti-Semitic things that I report to YouTube. I see that more often than I, (laughs) than anyone should ever have to. A lot of over-sexualization of what I am doing there. I mean, my job has become to put food in my face. I don't really know how it can work my way around that. But again, as I comb through the, through the comments, there was productive feedback there as well. People who wanted to see the prices on the food, people who had ambitions of doing something similar and didn't really know where to start. So at the end of the day, I realized we were providing some kind of service, even if it was 
a silly service or an inane service. And that's kind of why I'm excited to hear you call it journalism, because there is at the end of the day, like there is there is something there that people are are. There's a takeaway. You're walking away. You you know how you're attacking your next trip. And these theme parks mean a lot to people more so than I ever realized. So that was a very roundabout way of answering your question. People are very mean to me. They have become much nicer. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's a work in progress. Yeah, well, you know, you put yourself out there, and and unfortunately, that's kind of the the, the part of the deal is you know you're in you're working in that space, and you know people are jealous, people are you know they see something that they want to they feel it's an easy target to sort of knock down, and and I think that's that's part of the how many of these have you done? So we've done ten. I've shot an eleventh. By end of year, we'll have had 13 go live. Okay. So that's that's a lot. And you've certainly progressed through it. And I think it's clear that you've kind of learned things through it. Can you sort of talk about the, the process of producing one of these uh, YouTube videos? Yeah. And I will say that's one of the comments that does affect me is when people say that they could show up and do it the same. I don't think they realize the pre-production work that goes into these shoots the research that I'm doing of these foods, the coordination, again, with these PR and production teams at the parks who, again, it's so nice of them to let us come do this, especially now that we have hard evidence of how they turn out. And they know that I'm cursing in the parks and they know that I'm sitting on the ground crying. They know that and they let me come anyway, (laughs) but they can be difficult. So there's some wrangling going on behind the scenes. But as far as the progression of the episodes... We've realized that like 20 foods is a sweet spot. It's just enough to make me feel ill while allowing people a full day's worth of content. They can take their way through the parks and kind of follow the map of what we're doing. The map was an addition. We added prices because that was something people were asking about, rightly so. I've added a written component to each one of these videos. I do like a comprehensive guide that lives on the site permanently. And that's for people who say that I don't talk about what the food actually tastes like enough. Again, fair enough. I am spewing this stuff on the spot, so I don't always get into it as much as I possibly could. But that that guide is there for those who need it. I'm trying to think of how it's changed since day one. I mean, it's also pretty wild because this has really happened over the course of six or seven months. So we continue to adjust as we go. So what's the process? Do you pick a park, you, you assemble a list of, of foods that they have and decide, okay, these are the ones we're going to hit. This is kind of the trail we're going to take. And then it's just you and your, your camera woman or is it, are there a larger team these days? Firstly, we don't go to a park if we haven't vetted the search volume around it on YouTube. Yeah, there was, I mean, people ask about an international season I would love to do such a thing. The search volume around Tokyo Disney is far less than the search volume around Magic Kingdom, which is where we just came back from. So in order to send one of your, you know, very few editors, your primary camera woman out of the office for days at a time, because we shoot other stuff while we're there, we're reporting on other things, which again, not as many people are reading or seeing as these, but it's a week's commitment. There's a lot of effort in the post-production. Anyway, that's all to say, we see how many people are searching for it per month on YouTube. We kind of lay out our plan for the next few months. We did coordinate with YouTube on the Horror Nights episode, this forthcoming Christmas episode, because that was something they had asked for. I reach out to the parks, generally PR, 
I tell them what we're trying to do. I throw some stats at them now that our stats are very exciting. And I ask them to curate a list of foods they're excited about. And I throw at them foods I have seen that I'm excited about. I do my research because sometimes they like to send me things that aren't so exciting or pretty or (laughs) that really nobody should ever have to eat. Um, And we kind of work our way through a schedule. The schedules end up being very rigid. We start shooting early. We are rolling nonstop until we wrap. That's another question I got. I get a lot that people think we're breaking and we're splitting it up into a few days. We're not. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's myself and Chelsea. Um, Again, we're typically not allowed to roam the parks without some representation from Disney Universal, whomever. Some parks provide us with a very large like traffic control crew. That's the primary concern for them. There's almost always someone there from operations to make sure the food is as beautiful as possible. Yeah. And we just kind of hop right into it. There's no script to follow or anything like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Halloween one. I thought that was a really, there's, I don't want to say a sameness, there's a similarity of your approach in, a, in most of the ones you do, but that Halloween one seemed a, a little bit more different, uh, yes. I guess. And the people that you're interacting with were probably a little more liquid than you, you <laughs> usually ran into. That's a so, nice way to say it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what were your experiences there? Firstly, Chelsea is a horror buff, and I think she enjoyed the idea of making me a little bit uncomfortable. It's very much not my thing. The park had actually warned us ahead of time that the later we shot, the drunker people were going to be. And that was something we had to be wary of. I really thought I was going to hate how the episode turned out. I really, truly did. In my mind, I looked back at it. I was like, there was almost no critiquing of the food. I said nothing of substance. And that was, again, because I was on the fly and I was anxious. And I, again, I really try and and hone in on whatever service I can provide. And I really didn't think I provided much, but it was really funny. And so at the end of the day, when I watched it back and I was giving notes and we were adding music and sound, you know, whatever, I kind of had to let go of that and say, like, maybe this is just entertainment for entertainment's sake. Mm-hmm. That the other content, the journalistic content, the food critiquing played a, a smaller part of. So you alluded early on about your sassiness and your personality. You know, how big a part of it do you think is that to this kind of the success of this? Again, it's something I'm working on as we go. The first episode we shot, I didn't, I wasn't acting. I just kind of, it was a hot day. And this was something I thought honestly was just for fun. And we'd come back and I'd have told my editor like, yeah, we brought back four videos instead of the three we promised you. And, you know, that would be it. After the Disneyland episode, we did this full audit with someone on our tube on our team, excuse me, who was like a YouTube liaison. He had worked with them before. And that was six or eight months later when we were like, okay, it's time to shoot episode two. And that was going to be Wizarding World. So we sat down and we were like, okay, what exactly did people respond to? How are we going to replicate this? What did they hate? And we're never going to do again. And that was fascinating. And from that audit, we learned that people didn't like the brevity of it. They wanted to see more. They wanted more foods. They wanted to know where exactly in the park I was going, where I found these things. Could I be more specific about it? That was very helpful. We also realized that people enjoyed the arc of it all, the rise and the decline. So sure, I'm not acting when I feel very ill. I 
always feel ill. Like without fail, I feel so sick after these episodes. But I'd say I'm like, you know, hamming it up a little bit. Like Chelsea and I have like increased the banter happening in the episodes. People seem to enjoy that. It feels very breaking the fourth wall or whatever you want to call it. And again, it seems the less seriously I take it and the more visibly happy I am, people respond to it more. It's not always easy to balance happiness with the sass that I'm naturally feeling. (laughs) I'm like, what are we doing here? But yeah, there's certainly a little bit of, you know. Whatever, whatever that that, that quality is. You know, I I think it lends a degree of authenticity. It doesn't seem like an act. You know, the way you approach things, the way you kind of react, your reactions seem very legitimate and kind of reinforce the experience, I think. That's been sort of my observation about it. Now, I take it that Hearst has been really pleased with how this has been going. Yes, they are. (laughs) Yeah. So they're like, why can't you do this every day? Or maybe not. I I hope not. (laughs) I did put my foot down about um, about doing these every two weeks or so because my body... We, uh, we need some time to recoup. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we're working on the regularity. And I don't know if you can see behind me, we have a schedule for 2020 all laid out. Yeah, so ideally, it'll be two episodes a month. And we'll shoot a few in bulk and just kind of give me some time to digest. To digest, to, to recover. <laughs> so you've had success on YouTube. You know, what, what advice would you give to somebody who was looking to, they wanted to get in the space? A lot of, a lot of publications are... are they see the numbers you can get, the the traffic you can generate by, you know, having something successful on YouTube. What would you recommend to somebody who, who's like been given this mandate or, or want, wants to step forward into this arena? What would you say to them? Sure. I'm happy you've zeroed in on the authenticity of it all because sure, I am hamming it up, but there are certain takes where I'm really not. And I, again, I don't think it's something you see very often, especially from these very polished brands whose jobs are just, put out these ultra produced, beautiful reels and hope that that generates traffic. And, you know, it's not to say that that's not incredibly valuable. I mean, so much of Delish is professional food advice and, you know, in its own gluttonous, lovely way. Um, But we don't put those out with any kind of attitude. That is what it is. So sure, I think to see a little bit of a human touch is, has proven very successful for us. I hate to keep doubling down on this, but to provide people with some sort of information they can take away or some sort of like action item about something that they're really excited about. I mean, the joy around theme parks is very evergreen. These videos continue to grow every single day. It's like anywhere from three to 50,000 people are watching these every day. And again, it was unintentional, but we've learned to kind of manipulate it and add some joy. So I, I think all of that has been really helpful. And that's what I would suggest. Yeah. And I found it very fascinating in in talking to you that, you know, at the beginning, sort of understanding what you, you could do on YouTube, but then actually learning from the experience, you know, the audit especially seems like a really sort of smart move that, Hey, we're generating success. How can we repeat this or how can we grow on this? I think that's it's really kind of smart. Tess, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to continue to watch your videos. I encourage people to do it to see uh, somebody who seems to be authentically having fun most of the time, maybe not the last five minutes of the of, of each episode, but otherwise it's, it's something worth checking out. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. 
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.